Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome to Fever Dreams. And today I'm not joined by Swin because he's off on paternity leave, becoming a father. Instead, on this week's episode, we have Daily Beast reporter and Fever Dreams frequent guest host, Kelly Weil. Kelly, thanks for joining us. Hey, Will. My glorious reign is restored. And just know that I never said anything bad about deposing you while uh, (laughs) you were off the podcast. Yeah, well, I I assume that's the case. I I didn't listen to any episodes, so I'll take you at your word. Outstanding. We have a full episode today. You know, obviously you are, like me, really deep in this kind of right-wing lunacy stuff, really trudging through. We put our waders on. We go, like, noodling for wild right-wing catfish out in the swamps. Would you agree that there's plenty going on? Oh, yeah. It's a busy time. It's popping out there. Great. Well, you know, first of all, I I thought we could kick things off here with a little interactive episode. Sometimes listeners send me encounters they've had out in the wild with right-wing antics, bizarre encounters. So I thought I'd relay a story from a listener that was sent to me a few weeks ago, and I think it could be an educational experience for everyone. So I got a message from a listener who was out in a national park, and he said he he met a chill old guy. And it seemed like an all right guy. They were kind of hanging out in the park, just chilling. And then this guy started talking about how he's a white hat. And this is kind of the focus of the story is the meaning of this term white hat. And he started talking about how he's a member of a group of white hats who operate around the country, setting things right and for Donald Trump's return. And our listener was like pretty freaked out about it. And look, I have no way of verifying this story, but he was very keyed in on this term white hat. And so I thought that just as a little fever dream service item in case any of our listeners ever run into any of these white hats out in a national park themselves, we could just dive into what this term means and who's into it. How's that sound? That sounds great. And I love how there's these classifications. Like, I've used the Dungeons and Dragons World of Warcraft metaphor on here, but it keeps ringing true to me because people want to have their little class, their little, uh, their stats bar, if you will. What's funny about the White Hats title is it actually has real origin that makes sense. It comes out of the hacking world. And it was used to describe people who were hacking for good, who were looking for ways to exploit a website to then tell the website, hey, you're uh, accidentally showing people's credit card information. You might want to fix that. But in QAnon land, it has a pretty different meaning. Right, exactly. Obviously, you know, there's Western connotations that were picked up by hackers. And now in in QAnon world, and I think more broadly in sort of conspiratorial 
Trump land. They borrowed this white hat hackers term to mean if someone's a white hat, that means they're a good guy, despite what it may sometimes seem. Or if they're a bad guy, they're a black hat. And so you have these situations where back when QAnon thought Robert Mueller was on Donald Trump's side, they would say, I would be like, oh, like, why are they indicting Roger Stone or what have you? That doesn't look so good. And they'd say, don't worry, he's a white hat. Mueller's secretly a white hat. And so you have this kind of sense of white hats as these kind of secret benevolent they're like the these fraternities that only like like secret societies that just buy people like glasses and stuff it's kind of a they're a force for good out there so this is a term that i think is gaining increasing prevalence on the right as just like basically meaning a good guy so you know i thought we would clue the the listeners in there and i do love your comparison of it as sort of a a way to spice things up it's like you're in this park you meet a guy who's like yeah i'm a lawful neutral (laughs) what are you talking about wait 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 he's in a state park out west white hat black hat this is westworld yeah the great comparison yeah i gotta say i mean i do think the the west has you know a powerful supernatural energy kind of means this guy met like a a shapeshifter or something but i'm not getting too much into the story because i couldn't verify it it is the thing that when you get involved in these circles there is a lot of discussion and a lot of debate about is the head of the cia a white hat or a black hat is devin nunez a white hat or a black hat this is kind of a, a constant classification system that people are, are, are sort of breaking everyone down into. Yeah, I'm just going to go around calling myself a uh, blood elf paladin and uh, see if people <laughs> accept that. Okay, so obviously we're in this era of viral airplane freakouts. The guy who got duct taped down, for example. There's a new movement on the right that poses the question, what if an airplane was only that guy and also he's flying the plane? Kelly, tell us what's going on. So most major airlines are now requiring their employees to be vaccinated. And I think that's pretty reasonable for workers who spend most of the time in a crowded enclosed tube in the sky with zero ventilation. And the overwhelming majority of airline workers have complied with these requirements. That has not stopped some right-wing commentators from calling the vaccine requirements tyrannical and suggesting that they start their own anti-vax airline. Here is a, a tweet from an aspiring Georgia congressman. He says, imagine if an entrepreneur started a new airline hired all the pilots and staffs who said no to the jab and didn't require masks for passengers. It would be an overnight success. Overnight massive success. <laughs> you know, this reminds me of the thing where it's like, I can't be the only one who thinks that if the troops got a team together, they could beat everyone else in the NFL. Yes, it's that exact genre, right? Of All my imaginary friends are right there behind me and we're going to be very rich and win the football. I do think this is an interesting, we're seeing it as the vaccine mandates come into play, we're seeing sort of an increasing narrowing of of where unvaccinated people can go, particularly in blue states. And so I I think this idea, this is part of a a sort of a call for a a separate society that would be a place where the unvaccinated could flourish. I mean, frankly, that place is called Florida. So I I, I don't know really what the issue is. But I think this call for a a new airline is certainly a, a part and parcel of that. So if you want to hear another one of these, this is Elijah Schaefer. He's a journalist at The Blaze, which is a right-wing publication. He says, quote, no cap. If flying becomes impossible to due to that No cap, status, fam. No cap. <laughs> and so by no cap, he's saying, I'm not lying here. Like, no cap for real, for real. I'm going to plow my plane into a mountainside. Only real with you, fam. I am definitely going to crash my plane into a cornfield and trigger an FAA investigation. He says, already looking at pricing and mods in preparation, we'll probably share the plane with a few friends to cut down on maintenance and hangar costs. Surprisingly not expensive. I love this idea of conservatives like hitting a minor social roadblock and then just 
trying to launch a billion dollar enterprise to avoid it. It's like, it's like all the like teal fellows who wanted to go live out in the sea to avoid taxes. And at a certain (laughs) point you're like, okay, man, just go, you know, (laughs) it gets to a point where it's like, guys, this is just not convenient at all. And you know, on the other hand, there was all this talk about like, they wanted their own social networks. And obviously, this is an ongoing issue. And yet it's like, okay, well, you've been banned from PayPal. And it's like, no, I just don't think these guys necessarily have it in them to build an entire separate aviation system. I think if they do that, they have to really commit. Like I keep imagining, right, they're on the plane and a flight attendant comes on the intercom is like, is there a doctor on board? And like someone stands up and it's like, I'm a doctor. And they go, get him. And they throw him out the airlock or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, there is potential in this. And I, I'm interested to see what they come up with. So I mean, a couple of things here about Elijah's tweet. I mean, obviously, first of all, the one thing you don't want to hear if you're thinking about getting into the private aviation game is that costs are surprisingly low, particularly for maintenance. And then the other thing is, I think what's interesting about Elijah here, and and for the listeners, I mean, Elijah, there's an interesting Intercept article about him and his buddies called the Riot Squad. And these are the guys who go, particularly when there were like a lot of riots last year, these are the guys who go and infiltrate Antifa, quote unquote, and that kind of stuff. And you might say, well, if there's a vaccine mandate, you know, a lot of people don't fly that much. So how inconvenient would this be for your life, actually? Except... This would be hugely inconvenient for right-wing pundits because these guys fly constantly. I mean, particularly in the summer, I mean, they go to these rallies and the riots. I mean, they're they're crisscrossing the country several times a week sometimes. And so if it becomes you can only fly because you got vaccinated, then, I mean, number one, I think it becomes an issue with your fans where it's like, hey, bro, how'd you get here so fast? Did you get the vaccine? This is great momentum for like my pet issue of high-speed national rails. Like, let's get them behind that. But you are right that it's kind of vax up or shut up at this point for them because the entire network they have is basically built around riot porn. It's about live streams from wherever they zoomed into. And yeah, these days people don't want to sit next to an unvaccinated live streamer for a six-hour international flight. Normally, I would love to sit next to a live streamer, but not if they're unvaccinated. The other thing I would note here is like, especially this idea of creating a community of, of unvaccinated people who can fly around, share planes, that kind of stuff. Kelly, are you familiar with the concept of air park communities? I think I've seen one of the worst TikToks of yes, my life it, about exactly. this, but go on. Exactly. So these are, are sort of these exurbs, and they have enormous streets and enormous garages, and people park their planes there, and you kind of fly to your job or to get Chick-fil-A or what have you. They're incredibly haunting and like I think they're responsible for like 50% of global warming. But I think these guys could all move into one together. You know, that kind of works. It's sort of the end logic of those barge communities that I was talking about. Y'all live together, y'all pollute together, and you all die together in a uh, tragic aircraft issue. It's kind of shaping up to be like like the day the music died, but for live stream, it's the day the live stream ended. Longtime Fever Dreams listeners know that one of our favorite things here are feuds. Will, you have your eye on a couple of them that might have midterms implications. What's going on there? Yeah, so over the weekend, we started seeing a lot of feuds break out on the right that sort of, from afar, look really inexplicable. It kind of looks like, what's happening? Why are these people fighting? They all think the election was stolen. They all think Q rules. But actually, when you kind of narrow it down, it gets pretty interesting. And honestly, part of my passion about covering this beat is because the feuds are so intense there's so much factionalism people fight for absolutely no reason with each other but i think that there's an interesting split growing on the 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 far right which is something i call kind of this debate about quote fix 2020 so 
Over the weekend, we saw Marjorie Taylor Greene, obvious QAnon enthusiast, member of Congress, famous heckler of Democrats. She started saying, seemingly out of nowhere, started being like, look, guys, I'll be honest with you. Lynn Wood is an FBI agent. <laughs> or, you know, heavily implying. No cap. No cap. Lynn Wood is an FBI agent. No cap. Lynn Wood glows. And so this was, people were like, whoa, what's happening here? But the backstory here is that Lynn Wood, who, of course, pro-Trump lawyer, big QAnon guy, really just like the wheels are really coming off of his operation, has for a while been saying that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not going big enough on getting an audit in Georgia, reminiscent of the Arizona audit. And it does seem to be that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been sort of like, yeah, I don't know. That's not really my problem. I'm shouting at Debbie Dingell in Congress. And, and so Linwood for a while has been saying Marjorie Taylor Greene is a communist. But the, the reason they're feuding is, and I think this is a, a broader thing, is that basically you have this fight between True believers like Lynn Wood, who think the election was stolen, and that because the election was stolen, there's really no point in campaigning or doing any activism on behalf of the midterms or in 2024, no point in donating to Republican candidates, really nothing to support the party until the 2020 election is overturned and Donald Trump is returned to power. On the other hand, you have people who are certainly pretty kooky themselves, but are slightly more cynical, a little more opportunistic, and recognize that even if they do think the election was stolen, that it's not great for the team to be saying, like, yeah, nothing you do matters except audits, like kind of sit on your hands and then basically wait for another disappointing report, as we saw in Arizona. So we then have Marjorie Taylor Greene saying Lynn Wood is an FBI agent. I mean, to give you an idea here, here's Lynn Wood on Marjorie. If we do not fix 2020, we will be unable to once again establish the rule of law in our country. If we do not do so, 2022 and 2024 elections will simply be whatever the enemy wants them to be. Only a communist or communist sympathizer is not taking aggressive action to fix 2020. So that kind of is the battle lines there. I mean, he's calling Marjorie Taylor Greene a communist because it's like, if you're okay with the elections being stolen, I mean, you're not a Republican anymore. You're certainly not a member of the Q gang. Right. And to be clear, like both of these factions want to delegitimize the 2020 election and faith in the electoral process in general. But they're sort of like, do you want martial law now or martial law later? Right. Are you going to go hang out with the Linwoods and the Mike Lindells or are you going to be a little bit savvier and get some fundraising done for your re-election campaign on the way. Right. It's a little more effective. I mean, basically, like calling back to, I mean, this kind of fixed 2020 fight started really in the Georgia special Senate election, where you had someone like Lynn Wood saying, like, don't vote, don't vote for Republicans, don't donate to Republicans. And everyone else was losing their minds. But if you really follow it to its end, and, and they think that like a computer program named Hammer and Scorecard seals the election, there really is no point. Meanwhile, you have someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, who's kind of thinking this out a little bit more. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny when you try and think about the end point of that that sort of desperation that you're describing, that futility on the Linwood side. And then you realize that they do believe in almost a divine or white hat intervention, right? They do believe that some great overthrow will happen. And it's not really down to the voters. It's down to the military, right? It's down to the Trump operatives who are working against the deep state, that's what they really believe in. And that's the pressure that they are applying to people who, despite all their kookiness, do want to win re-election. I think this is the difficulty of riling people up with tales of a cabal or the idea that China stole the election. I mean, the, these powers are so beyond anyone's control. And you say, like, yeah, George Soros stole the election. He hacked it with the help of Hugo Chavez. Anyways, now go do your phone banking. 
because we need to, to turn it around. I mean, it, it doesn't really work. I mean, but Kelly, you know, you've been following. There's a there's another fight breaking out, and again, along this kind of fixed 2020 line in Arizona. Right. This is interesting because I think the politician and the loud activist voice are a bit flipped around here. So if you've been following the Arizona quote audit, a very loud voice in its support is Arizona legislator Wendy Rogers. She's so based. That's she's what they so, always say. You, she, she's got the glowing red eyes, Twitter icon. I love it. I love it when elected officials put their Twitter icon to the, the glowing red thing and their 24-year-old social media intern tweets based and maybe they make a griper image of themselves, a little meme frog. It's so cool. It's really hip and with the times, it makes me feel seen. No, this is a lawmaker who's pretty much hitched her wagon to the idea of electoral fraud. And she's making a lot of money off of it. She's just a state level legislator, but she is doing a lot of outreach to other states, trying to do fundraising based on the idea that there should be nationwide audits, just like the incredibly failed one in her home state of Arizona. Wendy Rogers has become sort of a weird kingmaker. Like she kind of travels the country doing endorsements. And in any other situation, people will be like, some state senator from like halfway across the country endorsed you who cares but wendy rogers has this has this clout from being like the most diehard person on the audit right it's the right-wing shit posting caucus right it's like it's you've got like the meme queen and it makes no goddamn sense if she doesn't get to congress or like take some statewide office it's gonna be a huge failure on her part because she has like so much energy behind her yeah exactly it's no congressperson needs to have a uh, a telegram where they're cultivating their fans and yet that's something that we're starting to see emerge with this faction of lawmakers but what's interesting is that even in arizona even on the far right in arizona this tactic hasn't been universally well received so there is a group calling itself the arizona patriot party you've got these Patriot Party groups in various states. A lot of them are just fronts for Proud Boys or fringe personalities, people who think that the Republican Party is not far enough astray and they need it to go even kookier. Members of the Arizona Patriot Party are calling Wendy Rogers a grifter for this tactic of trying to fundraise off national audits. And you know, you hate to hand it to them, but there's something there. So Kelly, I mean, here's what I'm thinking. Like, sort of the shot in this fight is Wendy Rogers tweeting, Late at night, good night to all patriots who are faithful in their marriages and not homewreckers who date married men. Now, people might say, oh, it sounds like trouble in the Rogers household, right? But not quite. That's right. So this is all a jab at two people associated with the Patriot Party, a woman named Maggie Vandenberg and her partner, I believe, who's an aspiring state legislator. She, Wendy is effectively accusing them of... This lady's named Fog City Midge is her nom de guerre. That's right. Wendy Rogers seems to be accusing them of, oh, relationship misconduct. And the reason for this so says the Arizona Patriot Party, is that they asked Wendy Rogers to sign a petition indicating her continued support for discrediting elections. 
Wendy Rogers said she did, but the Patriot Party accused her of not doing it forcefully enough. So this is where we're at, is this intense terror splitting over audit devotion and fundraising, and it's spelling out in what sounds like MySpace statuses from 2005, accusing each other about homewrecking. Right. I, I think this is both this Linwood, Marjorie Taylor Greene fight and Wendy Rogers versus Fog City Midge are indicative of this kind of larger split that we're going to start seeing, particularly as the midterms get closer, because I think the election fraud true believers are savvy enough to realize that like you can't tell people this situation was so bad and then be like, anyways, we're moving on though. And so so I think that's why in part we keep they keep throwing out the, the red meat, these audits, etc. But I think the cognitive dissonance has kind of fallen apart. Yeah, they're definitely in a bind now, right? The Arizona audit was supposed to have like reinstalled Trump as president by August or something, right? And we keep having these failed prophecies. And then the actual substance of the audit, which I mean, if you take any of it for granted, which run under very suspect circumstances. But even at face value, it still said Biden won. To get that blow to something that was hyped up so intensely for months and months as the first domino in toppling the Biden regime, that's upsetting. That does actually take a psychological toll on people. So I don't think it's so surprising that we're now seeing this infighting and blame casting and really a question of direction as these groups figure out where exactly they're going to pivot for meaning and in more practical terms for their money. Kelly, what are your thoughts on natural wine? I'll drink anything I can get from a box in my local gas station. So a uh, natural wine sounds fine. Now, what would you think if the natural wine came from a doomsday cult? That, frankly, sounds even better. (laughs) Okay, well then, settle in for our... This week on the podcast, we have Jennings Brown, a reporter who has a new podcast called Revelations on Spotify, in which he goes inside a doomsday cult famed for its natural wine, and things get pretty weird. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, today we're joined by Jennings Brown, who has a new podcast on Spotify called Revelations. Jennings, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been listening to the first couple episodes of the podcast. I think it's fascinating. If you could sum it up for somebody, what is the podcast about and what is the Fellowship of Friends? The Fellowship of Friends is a spiritual organization based in California, but they have centers all over the world, hundreds of members. At times, they had thousands of members. It's hard to condense their dogma down to a few sentences, but basically one of the things is they, they believe that in order to awaken 
To achieve higher consciousness, you should surround yourself with higher impressions, high culture, like they collect Renaissance art. They have a, a huge vineyard that they maintain for decades. They bring in ballet and opera, and they have 44 angels that oversee them, and it's Shakespeare and Rembrandt and Da Vinci and Bach. And so it's kind of this sort of spiritual group of refinement. But they also, the leader predicts when the world is, is supposed to end. So a lot of ex-members have called it a, a doomsday cult. It's really a fascinating place and a very interesting take on, you know, an alleged cult. It's sort of like hedonism bot in Futurama, where it's just like they, they want to just be awash with this wine and this culture. In your podcast, you go to the, I guess you would call it a compound in Northern California, particularly right around the date of a predicted doomsday. What did you discover when you went inside? I mean, it, it's such a sort of bizarre picture you paint uh, in the podcast. Yeah. So initially, you know, I've done some reporting on spiritual groups and spiritual abuse and kind of fringe communities. And I, I got a tip that, well, just first I, I found out about this group. So, and it just seemed like beyond fantasy, like this monastery refinement. I wanted to see it. And as soon as I got out there, I, I started realizing that I heard from ex-members that there was this predicted doomsday coming up. And I thought, wow, like this is how often am I going to get a chance to see a group, a, a spiritual group in the days leading up to their doomsday. So fortunately, I, I was able to get access to their compound and kind of embed in their community. I mean, they knew I was a journalist. I was being very open and, and transparent, but I was able to get access for the last week before the world was supposed to end. So I observed they kind of they had this final black tie dinner, the last supper before everything was supposed to end the next day. And in, in this prediction, like everybody dies except for them. And they're going to build a new world based on the beliefs and all of the, you know, they've been collecting what they believe is the best of civilization. But anyway, I was there for, for the doomsday. And as I was there, I started kind of hearing more rumors and stuff about these sex rituals that kind of obviously started to set off my spidey senses. Things seemed very off. And I realized that, I mean, I knew there were reports from the 90s of the leader allegedly sexually abusing some members. Some members sued him. But after the 90s, it just went quiet. But what I was hearing was there seemed to be a lot more. And it seemed like there were a lot of members that were coming in from other countries that the fellowship helped them get religious visas because they have centers all over the world. And now most of the recruitment is Russia and Romania and Eastern European countries. I was hearing that these men were coming in with religious visas that the fellowship helped them obtain and that they were sort of living and working with the leader and that some were participating in these sex rituals. So that is when I began to fall down the rabbit hole and I spent the next three years reporting on allegations of wide-scale sex abuse and trafficking. Jennings, you have done a lot of work on alleged cults and alternative religious movements. And at this point, anyone who looks you up can kind of see that this is something that you're really intensely focused on. How do you get a group like the Fellowship of Friends to let you in after that's what you've been very clearly working on for like five years? Well, I guess it's because I'm not trying to like expose. I mean, I really I come into these groups with like genuine curiosity. I and you know, I'm like, I, I want to know what's going on. I want to understand the belief system. You know, I, I've I'm a bit of a seeker myself. And I'm like, look me up. Like, clearly, you can see my reporting. Um, I'm interested in this stuff. But if you if you listen to the, or read the work I do, I very much try to, to show 
both sides of it and like the appeal and what draws people in. Sure enough, they, they invited me out. And then once I was out there, they looked me up and they're like, actually, we don't want you to come under a compound. And then I talked to them more and they finally let me in a few weeks later. But it's like there is plenty of, of negative coverage out there. Like you could I could do a story about that. But to really understand and to get your side and to see why people join this community and why so many people believe that it enriches their life. I have to see it from the inside and get and get that perspective. And I think they respond to that. And it's genuine. Like I, they can tell that I'm genuinely curious. And once I'm there, I'm asking these questions because, I mean, my mind is like blown by the, the things that people are saying about the angels and putting on these Shakespearean plays as a way to sort of channel one of their angels of William Shakespeare. And I mean, I'm just like just consuming all this and baffled and, and loving it. And they can tell that. So um, I think they respond to my enthusiasm. I think I'm struck when you do go out to the compound and they call you and say, hey, we might have to reconsider this. We, we looked you up and it seems like some of these fringe religious groups don't always come off that well. And then like a day later, they're like, oh, you know what? What the heck? Why not? They believe in it so deeply. And, and if they believe that if, if somebody gives a chance and tries to understand it, then they'll feel the same they do. And I really do try as much as I can to to fully understand what they're about. You know, were you ever concerned for your safety while you were out there? I mean, you're going into this compound. There's points where guys roll up and are just like, yeah, you're with me now. Sort of take you off on their own. What were your thoughts throughout that? Absolutely. I was very terrified at many times. And I, I some of it was paranoia, but it's out in the the depths of the California wilderness. It's one of the poorest counties in California. It's, it's infamous for being a hotbed of marijuana farms and meth labs. And it's just tall forest. And you just, it very much feels like the hills have eyes no matter what. And like, no matter how you feel about it, no matter whether or not there's an alleged doomsday cult, like it's just a spooky place. And I, I knew that the president had sort of welcomed me and then not welcomed me. And, and I, but still like, I just felt very much like an outsider driving in with my rental car. And there were, yeah, there were times like when I was, it was like before the doomsday, like, the kind of right before midnight, they took me up on a hill and I'm overlooking the compound and like it's I have no cell service and I'm alone with this one member who's been tasked with escorting me around. And I'm like, he, he takes it, gets a call and he steps off for a minute and I just can't see anybody. I'm alone out in the middle of this compound. And I was like, this is how I die. This is when my journalistic curiosity gets the best of me. And I always say that like eventually my curiosity is going to lead me in the wrong direction. But again, I don't want to I don't want to accuse them of being dangerous or having tried to kill me or anything. So much it was paranoia. But I did get a, a lot of members, ex-members told me beforehand, like, please be careful, be prudent, like just you don't know what you're getting into. And, and now I've been getting tons of, of tips and, and, and leads from now that this podcast is out from from ex-members who are like, I don't know how you you did that. Like, I would be terrified to be a, go around those parts alone. So you talk to a lot of members, a lot of ex-members. What's sort of the target demographic when this group goes recruiting? I mean, a lot of strange and wonderful people. I ended up speaking to about 100 people who have been involved with this group over the last 50 years and many who still are. Because their dogma is sort of about refinement and culture and, and the finer things, I should note much of it is like very European. I mean, they're much like they're 44 angels. It's mostly men, a lot of white men. Uh, there's one woman there, the ballets, opera, wine. I mean, it's it's all just kind of they want to they want to build a new world based on like the best of what they see of Western Europe culture. So obviously that caters to a certain like class of uh, culture refinement. I mean, it's a lot of doctors and lawyers and executives and heirs. And they started out mostly recruiting the Cal in California in the 70s. And then they expanded across the country, moved to Europe, had a lot of centers. I mean, they would they'd have these these teaching centers just outside of like London and Paris and Frankfurt. And and it was these mansions where young seeking people in the 70s and 80s would like 
go, go out to these mansions and see all these young, beautiful people talking about the same esoteric ideas. And it was incredibly intoxicating. Now it's been harder for them to really get American recruits and, and Western European recruits. So that's lately they've been mostly trying to to recruit in like Romania, Russia, Latin America. So it is somewhat diverse in that sense. But yeah, it's mostly mostly whites and kind of at least the older members are kind of more upper crust. When you talk so much about how how the early members were like kind of wealthy heirs and stuff who were very attracted to this lifestyle of consume nice music and art and then you get to survive the apocalypse kind of it struck me as like a like connor from succession or something just kind of very very like living out in this compound but aside from even your personal safety i mean just some of the scenes you paint on this podcast of this universe you entered i mean it just seems so bizarre like you're talking about people who are like kind of consuming this this food and and music like they're in a trance particularly like the night before they they ostensibly believe the world's gonna end i mean it reminds me of maybe like this sh- like british show like the prisoner like you just entered this really weird world i mean were you thinking to yourself like how how is this happening what am i seeing Absolutely. Like it becomes so normal. And I think that's a part of the intoxication. And I get more into that in later episodes where I go back. I went back for see their the performance. They did Shakespeare and they have this gorgeous amphitheater that they built themselves, this limestone amphitheater. It looks like something out of ancient Greece. I mean, it's open air. You can see their vineyard in the background. And this is like a terraced vineyard. They like dug these these terraces out of this mountain and planted the, the biggest mountain vineyard in America. So you see that in the background. And there's also like hundreds of palm trees on this place, even though this is like backwoods, California. It's like pine tree territory, but they've the leader, he gets obsessed with palm trees that he sees. And then he has his members go and barter or buy, either buy the palm trees or barter of them for wine. Well, this is what blew my mind was when there's a guy who's like, yeah, my job is getting, he sees plants and he wants them. And I'm like, oh, well, he finds out the species of plant and they get that kind. It's like, no, he gets that tree. Yeah, yeah. Robert, when he sees something he wants, he has to have it. And he would send this guy, Jack, one of the one of the characters in, in the, the series, he'd send him to go get that palm tree. And if the person didn't <laughs> want it, he would barter because they have tons of wine. He had to do whatever he could to get it. And so now they have like, I counted it on Google Earth and you should look up the estate. It's bananas. But they have like nearly a thousand palm trees, all like, I mean, incredible landscaping. But he has this garden outside of his home that's like very much shaped like Versailles. And so the leader lives in a mansion on the on the compound and they have this garden it's like Versailles, but it's all palm trees and Rome rose gardens. And it's very much evokes like Alice in Wonderland, which one of their angels, by the way, is Lewis Carroll. So that kind of makes sense. But anyway, there's times where I was just completely entranced by this strange world. And there's one, I think in the fourth episode, I was invited to a cocktail party in that garden. And it was, I mean, the sun was setting, the, there's these fountains, the it, palm trees, and we're all, I was dressed very nice. I wanted to fit in. So it kind of, you'd kind of dress like, like going to, to church. It's sort of like, I describe it's kind of like a mix of like Midsommar meets Eastern Sunday. It's very floral and extravagant and like Rococo. But I was there and having this cocktail party and everybody at my table is just acting with delight to everything I say. I mean, there it's, and I, I realized eventually it was like a form of love bombing. I mean, they're like, wow, you're so funny. You, it's like, you're one of us. Like you, you're like one of the students. And I was getting sort of charmed and sucked in by that. And then, um, and then the leader approaches this scene and like sits right next to me and just that energy of like everybody so focused on this man who like, who's created this whole world and him sitting near me and sort of showing interest in me. Like I was immediately put in that world and I, it helped me totally understand how you could get sucked into that and want that every day. So I mean, did you have the sense that they were trying to recruit you? Oh yeah. I got asked to join 
many times, and I even went through the recruitment process. Ultimately, I did not join because I just thought that would be disingenuous and kind of murky, journalistically ethical territory. And because you, one of the things is you immediately have to start paying. So there was really no way to, for me to do it without starting to give them a tithing. So I, I ultimately did not. They eventually you know, started asking me to join. So one thing tenant of this group, right, are these doomsday predictions. What exactly do those entail? Well, so the leader gets the messages from the 44 angels, again, like uh, Dante Alighieri, uh, John Milton, Walt Whitman. He's the only one that can hear from them, but he gets these messages for when the world is about to end. And usually it's some, I mean, it unfolds over many years. Usually it starts with, it's some variation of like, California is going to, the big one is going to come. California will break off into the ocean. Because of where they're positioned, they will become beachfront property. So they have a sort of protection there. That will lead to a sort of economic collapse because massive part of of America snapped off. That'll lead to civil unrest and eventually nuclear war. And pretty much everything else will be obliterated but them. And so they'll start a new empire. But it's happened like every, every 10 years or so, he gets a new... He gets a new prediction. With the first one, a lot of people ask, so so what do you, what what happens? And and with the first one, it was like, it didn't happen. He said, the angels did this to humiliate me, to to teach me a sense of humility. And then you're like, well, all right, my leader is better now. He's more humble. Each one, he kind of has a a pretty sly reasoning. He keeps taking L's. (laughs) You're like, the angels keep voting him. Obviously, this question of like, when prophecy fails is something, you know, we're dealing with a lot, even outside of the Fellowship of Friends. I think of the predicted QAnon dates that come and go, or even in, in a more kind of banal way, like when it's this audit fails to prove the election was stolen, or this memo will uncover the secret plot against Trump. What did you discover in the podcast about how people grapple with when these because obviously spoiler alert for the podcast the world did not end while you were visiting the cult God. So, or, <laughs> why, why are you blowing it for no yeah 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 as this was all unfolding all of that was unfolding a, a larger conversation around kind of doomsday thinking and predictions and cognitive dissonance so it felt very a lot of similarities there as i you know say in the second episode during this like leading up to the prediction i was reading the book as you mentioned earlier when prophecy fails which was leon fessinger social psychologist his team embedded in a doomsday cult in the 50s to see what would happen and once the world doesn't end and, and the leader came up with a new rationale for that like that um you showed your devotion so god decided not to end the world and you're then had given two options either you accept that you've been completely duped and you've given up your family and your life savings for nothing or you can take this other option. And it's psychologically easier to take that other option. That psychologist went on to come up with a theory of cognitive dissonance. But I saw that with the fellowship. I mean, a lot of times it's like you hear about these doomsdays, people leave, it falls apart or something dramatic happens. But what here, he's been doing this for 50 years. So these members have time and time again sort of had to go through the sort of mental gymnastics of processing these predictions and the buildup and then the disappointment and then the new reasoning and just seems to have kind of sowed this like very strong devotion to their leader and begs the question, like, what does he do with that kind of devotion that he's built over half a century? And that's, you know, where we're going with with the next the rest of the series. It strikes me that when you're, when you're in the compound, you're meeting some people who are sort of like, they've gotten very used to this lifestyle and living in this group. And it's perhaps less so about the prophecy not coming true, at least for some of these people, you have a guy who is saying basically like, oh, yeah, this is like, who cares about the apocalypse prediction? Yeah, they've all kind of found their own way. I think some of the ones who are just sort of enjoying the spoils and maybe you're, they found a way of making it a little more practical. And I wouldn't really be able to prove this, but I feel like some of the members who were who came into it wealthier, maybe had family money, they didn't seem to have, have to like 
have gone through as much abusive behavior and things. I mean, I think like their their value was kind of in the money that they were putting in and less on like what they could do with their bodies. I mean, like as far as like labor exploitation, possible sex abuse. But yeah, as I noticed like some of the older people, they kind of had this sort of detached like, well, maybe this is a just sort of a, a practical way. Maybe this is an exercise. And then there's some people who were like buying like 50 years worth of food. And I mean, it was, but it was funny, the kind of the different spectrum of beliefs of what was actually going to happen. You talked to a lot of ex-members. Was there any like unifying factor that made people wake up that that drove people out of this group? Huh, there really wasn't. I think everybody kind of had a different tipping point. After some of these failed doomsday predictions, there would usually be a, a bunch of people that leave, but far more people who would stay. There was a big exodus when the sexual abuse allegations in the 90s started to come out after, uh, uh, or somebody sued the leader in the fellowship alleging that the leader had sexually abused him starting when he was 17. And so that is when people started to leave. Because another component of this is that in the early years, there was no sex before marriage. That was not allowed. Women were forced to get abortions. There was no homosexuality was not allowed at all. That was like cosmically wrong. And so when it came out that the leader was having sex with with younger male students, I think that was sort of shocking because that was kind of like, that's a thing that you couldn't really rationalize in their dogma. Like, well, we've been believing this whole this one thing the whole time. And now you're clearly not only like preying on students and abusing your position of power, but like you're going against this rule that we all believed in. I think that was a, there was a big shift there. But lately, it's just like people kind of either they realize they have no more money because they've put all of their funding into the fellowship. I mean, it's extremely expensive. There's, in addition to the 10% tithing, every event, every, they'll cost hundreds of dollars. The meetings can cost $100. You're, you're sort of expected to go to like three to five meetings a week. So I think some just realize like they, in order to survive, they had to leave or also, Robert's, the leader's dogma has kind of spiraled into this radical numerology that is really hard to make sense of now. So, you know, one thing here about the leader of this group is you mentioned that he gets a lot of his clues from vanity license plates that he sees. Can you break that out for us? Yeah. So in the early days, he mostly got messages from like he would find meanings in, in, the, in the messages from the 44 angels, like the artworks of Rembrandt and the writings of Whitman. And But over time, he started to get messages like he would be looking at a license plate or a billboard and get kind of a ping from one of the angels uh, that 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 message was important. So he'd be looking at like a vanity plate that would be like have a certain like phrase or date or number. And like that was maybe when the world was supposed to end, because then he would get like a ping then telling him it was important. And so over time, it's just sort of spiraled. So it, it was something kind of spooky to me uh, watching, you know, seeing in the in these meetings where he would go from this beautiful artwork and talking about the meaning and that I could understand. I mean, like I was a theater nerd growing up, like I, I, it's not like it's not beyond me to think that Shakespeare had some sort of divine, you know, like the poetry that came out of these artists, like what made these, these certain people elevated more so than others or spiritually awake or whatever. Like I, I see the messages there, but then he would go from from like this beautiful painting and like the secret meaning of like the numbers and all that to to a vanity plate or a billboard or something. And then as if it's all sort of the same, which maybe it is like I don't want to be dismissive of, of their belief system, but that was very shocking to me. It's outsider art, right? It's more accessible. Too hot to handle. What does this say? Apocalypse next week. I was wondering what kept the people in who were there on that last supper. Were they really expecting the world to end? Again, I think some people told me 
at this point, it's happened so much, they just have to accept it's like an exercise because their whole thing, like part of their beliefs is that becoming conscious is about becoming fully present, which is basically kind of extreme form of mindfulness, just like being very aware and, and present in the moment. And Robert, the leader, has like just become fully present. So he is kind of on this God level and they're all just sort of fully being trying to be present. And that's why a lot of times they're always like sort of sort of staring into the distance at these things, like kind of in this trance state, trying to be actively present. And so a lot of people say, well, maybe this is just an exercise in being fully present. And I got that. Like on that day, I was staying in an Airbnb with a few members because all the Airbnbs out there are members. So every time I was out there, I had to stay with members. And that was another spooky element for me at times. But being there, the excitement of like what's going to happen and everybody like you're drinking their Renaissance wine and, and the dinner and like it just feels like the ultimate New Year's, the countdown. And some people would get up on the hill overlooking the town and just like so they could see it happen. And, and you, you feel like very aware in that moment. Like at, at that moment, I wasn't thinking about Trump. I wasn't thinking about anything in the outside world. I was just like excited. And like all these people had come from all over the world for this moment. And you're like, well, maybe there is a purpose to this. Maybe this guy isn't totally off here. Like maybe like this is and then like a lot of people definitely were like, well, I need to show my devotion in the same way, whatever that biblical story is of like the man who uh, almost killed his son because God asked it and then stopped at the last minute. A lot of them were like, yeah, like I could tell they didn't actually think it was going to happen, but they wanted to prepare as if it was going to happen just to show that they were le- they were following their leader's orders. So and then there was some people who so the next day, the morning after there was this like bizarre plan, like where it was like kind of a farmer's market and food and all that. And everybody's just kind of like wandering around as if it's just like a, a typical happy Sunday. And there were some people who were there who were like clearly disappointed. They'd gotten so excited for this for months. It was interesting seeing the the varying degrees of, of people's investment in this prediction. At least I got a nice farmer's market out of it. <laughs> I mean, an incredible, incredible mozzarella. I mean, they have water buffalo. They make fresh mozzarella. They have a garden. I mean, I hate to like pitch this place, but it is in Eden. Their wine is, they were kind of modern pioneers of the now booming natural wine industry. I mean, they, because they like, they pump so much money into this, into this sacred vineyard. I mean, then their wine was incredible. It's award winning. I mean, they'll probably sell a lot from this podcast because it comes up. But it's just you're there and you're like, this place is pretty enchanting. Great. Well, the podcast is called Revelations and it's available on Spotify. Jennings is on Twitter at T Jennings Brown. Jennings, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been it's been fun. Let's move on to Fresh Hell. Will, as you know, Trump events kind of have a team sports mentality. There are chants like lock her up. But now it seems like there is a hot new cheer in Trump world. What's going on there? That's right. I mean, look, here at Fever Dreams, we're not afraid to get servicey. I fear our listeners are going to be out there and they're going to see this phrase everywhere and they're going to say, what on earth is going on here? So in this week's Fresh Hell, in the spirit of October, we are truly taking you to the lowest pits of hell to explain the new Trump world slogan, let's go Brandon. So the backstory here is that for a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, at sort of events where you might imagine they'd be heavily pro-Trump, college football games, NASCAR rallies, country concerts, people have been chanting, fuck Joe Biden. Look, it's not the cleverest slogan, (laughs) but they get into it. Fuck Joe Biden! Fuck Joe Biden! But look, it's a little vulgar, right? So fortunately, they've been offered a 
a little more polite way to say it. That's right. They have been chanting, let's go, Brandon. How did they arrive at that alt chant? So there was this NASCAR game, which again, is going to be a hotbed for fuck Joe Biden chants. And I think just to set it up, the fuck Joe Biden chant has become this really sort of like a talisman of this idea that there is a growing revolt against Joe Biden. I mean, it's not really considered, I think, that these are like the most Trump friendly venues. But basically, every time one of these crowds gets a little vulgar, starts the chant up, the Gateway Pundit's going to write it up. The video is going to go all around Instagram. Old Row, which is a sort of barstool type site, is getting very into these chants at college football games. But yeah, so there was this NASCAR match and a driver named Brandon Brown was being interviewed on NBC. And the crowd started a fuck Joe Biden chant. And the anchor, seemingly trying to save face, said, Oh, well, we're going to have to cut away. They're chanting, let's go, Brandon, which is maybe the most unbelievable explanation. That's like a lie you tell a toddler. It's like, uh, no, honey, like th- those those candies are bad. The mom's got to take them. They're shouting, let's go, Brandon. Like, you don't have to pretend. Yes, exactly. So let's go, Brandon now has really taken off. There was a Trump rally on Saturday. Tons of let's go, Brandon shirts. Donald Trump Jr. has tweeted, let's go, Brandon. At the one of the speakers, Mark Fincham, who is a state rep involved in the Arizona audit, gets up there and makes a let's go, Brandon reference. Uh, even the Trump campaign has sent out fundraising texts with let's go, Brandon. So I regret to inform our listeners, but I mean, this is really going to be with us for a while. It's great. It's like, it's kind of like middle school code, right? Where you, you have a code name for the teacher you don't like, and everybody knows it's like, he, 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 he. listen, at least I can chant it on TV. I don't mind it too bad. I think it's kind of cheeky. I will say NBC really handed this one to them. But but nevertheless, I really do think, I mean, one of my fascinations is, is how the right really keeps these memes going for a really long time. And I guess you could say the left does too. I mean, certainly we still see uh, Twitter accounts that are like cup of kofefe, that kind of stuff. I think about there was this time in like 2008, where Obama said there were 57 states. And they really zeroed in on that because this was, you know, also the number of uh, countries in the Organization of Islamic States. And so they thought this was kind of a symbol of that. But still, I'll be on blog posts and people will be like, uh, 57 states much? So this is 13 years later. So I think let's go, Brandon. I I think settle in, folks, because we're going to be seeing this for a while. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 